We're in Hebrews chapter 1. Roughly 2,000 years ago, in a rural village of a small town, a young, probably teenage girl, a virgin, gave birth to a child. This child was named Jesus because this girl, Mary, you know, was visited by an angel, and the angel said, hey, name this child Jesus. This child was born in an obscure place. He was raised in an obscure village called Nazareth. Nazareth was a village that was off the beaten path. There were no trade routes that went through it. It wasn't a place uh, that had many people who would visit it for any reason. It was not very densely populated. It was a podunk town. The colloquialism about this town was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was so off the beaten path that not many people knew about it, and what they did know about it, it wasn't very popular. This boy that was born there that we know as Jesus was raised there in relative obscurity for about 30 years. About 30 years. We know little about his life. We have snippets about his birth, and we've been reading about those on Sunday mornings leading up to this morning. We have a little snippet of his early childhood as he's in the temple teaching and confounding the teachers of his day, but not much else. And so you get to age 30 where Jesus begins his public ministry, and we begin to hear and see and read about what he does, but up until that point, we know nothing. We know that he was raised by Joseph. Joseph basically adopted this child. It wasn't his son by birth, but Joseph adopted this child, trained him in carpentry. So for those 30 years, we know he was learning how to swing a hammer and cut the wood straight and use the saws that they had in their day. He was a normal kid, you might think, from the outside. There was nothing that would draw your attention to him from the outside. He was probably very easy for Mary to raise, at least, you know, he would be obedient. He was not sinning. He was doing exactly what he was told. He probably wasn't the easiest big brother to have <laughs> if you're a kid and Jesus does everything right and you're James and you don't. He never left the country, didn't travel far, never held political office, never got married, never wrote a book, and yet there are more books written about this man than any other man in the history of the world. There are more nations around the world that recognize his name at the mere mention of it. More songs are written about him and more poems are written to him than any other person or any other theme in the history of the world. He, he by all intents and purposes, from the outside, didn't accomplish much in his 33 years of life. What business did he start? What teaching did he leave that we could say was written down, compiled in a book? Well, we as Christians know it was, but often the world has no idea. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50 years. Aristotle taught for another 40. Jesus taught for three and yet his life and impact have changed the world more dramatically than any other man, even the combination and all these men put together. Jesus is more impactful than any of them. He literally split history in two. 
B.C., before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. He is more influential than any other person. His name is more recognized than any other person. He never started a school or a college or a university, and yet he has more learners of him than any other person or any other college or any other institution has. More artwork has been inspired by him. And it is during this time of year, isn't it, that the world kind of turns their gaze to him. You could be walking through Ralph's and on the radio playing will be songs about the incarnate Son of God come to save sinners. These old Christmas hymns that have been been sung for centuries are playing on your car radio on your way here. You drive around and you see these decorated houses. You'll see pictures of Jesus or sayings about Jesus or images of Jesus. You'll see inflatable Jesuses, light-up Jesuses. You'll see Jesuses everywhere you turn. All kinds of Jesuses. His title, Christ, in the very holiday that we're all talking about. People are saying his name. You turn on TV, there'll be stuff about Jesus. You watch Charlie Brown, and you'll hear something about Jesus. He's in every shop. He's in every store. He's on people's lawns. He's on their roofs. He's on the radio. And yet, how many people know who in the world this Jesus really is? So often around this time of year, it's it's a nice fable, we think, when it comes to Christmas. It's a legend. It's a fun myth that we tell our kids or we like to remember around this time of year. But it's no more than that for many people. For many people, he's like the spiritual version of Santa Claus. He comes out this time of year. We sing songs about him. We think about the baby. It brings us good feelings, and and that's about it. We hear stories that are so traditional and familiar. They warm us up inside. But I want to look at Jesus from a different perspective. I want to ask, who is this child? What child is this in the manger? Who is it that came? What is he really? Uh, we, we often, in, around Christmas time, and this is right and good that we do this, we look at the, the birth narratives, we look at what the wise men did, we hear about the shepherds, and we hear about the angels, and all this is well and good, and we should do that. Well, this is all the human perspective of what happens around Christ's birth. I want to take a different angle this morning, and I want to look at the Christ child from God's perspective. Who is He? I want to make sure we understand what was happening. And and this will kind of be like part one of of, uh, a really short series that will continue tomorrow evening. So to this morning, I want to more look at who Jesus is. And tomorrow evening for 15 minutes, we're going to look at what Jesus did. We're going to get a little bit about what Jesus did this morning, but mostly I want to look at who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Hebrews chapter 1. Now I want you to recognize this book, the letter to the Hebrews, is all about Jesus Christ, okay? Beginning to end, the the writer of the letter is trying to establish in his readers the idea that Jesus is supreme. 
Jesus deserves worship. Don't turn from him. If you're with him, don't leave him. If you don't know him yet, come to him. It's all about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. We all need Jesus. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. And so he's making this case throughout this letter to the Hebrews. And he begins with what might be called the best or highest Christology, the highest statements about who this Savior we know to be called Jesus really is. It's a beautiful passage, and I'm going to read it, and we're going to pull out some aspects of the character and the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read, uh, read with me. We're in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to read four verses, and we'll dive in. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We're going to see five looks at Jesus, okay? Five looks at Jesus from this text. Here's our first look. Jesus is the eternal creator, so be amazed. Jesus is the eternal creator, so be amazed. I want to start in verse 2, kind of midway through it. Look at what he says. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, God's Son, and he begins to describe him, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, listen to this, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That Christ child in the manger, the writer of Hebrews is describing in such a way that it would baffle the world if they were to understand this. You're saying he's more than just a baby? He's more than that? Yes. The world was created through him according to this text. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. It says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That kind of narrows it down to who this child really is. There's really only one kind of person that can uphold the universe by the word of his power, and that's God. And this is very clearly the saying that this Christ, the one sent from heaven, is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God. He's upholding the universe by his power. He is fully divine. Uh, think about this. Uh, we, we, you can go back in your mind and you can go back in, in history and you can go back and try to f uh, trace the source of Christmas. Where, is, where does Christmas begin? And you would go back to that early uh, days of Jesus, maybe it's when he's a child and you go back maybe a little bit further than that, he's, he's being born in the manger and we have that imagery in our mind of the, the nativity scene, maybe that's the beginning of Christmas, that's where it all began. I think you might be, maybe though, can go back farther. 
Think about this. If we're trying to think, where does Christmas begin? Go back even farther. You go, you go back to the very creation of the world. You go back to when God is speaking into existence this universe. And here we see in the text, God, listen, is creating the world through Him. Through whom? Who's that? The Son of God. Through the Son of God, He created the world. Jesus Christ, He didn't have that human name Jesus yet. He, at that point, is the Son of God. He is participating in the creation of the world. You go back into the peerless ages, to the moments of creation, and you have to ask yourself, who was there or what was there before creation came into being? You, you have creation, and it has a beginning point. And what is there in existence before that beginning point? Who is responsible for bringing everything into existence? Mountains and trees and fields and plains and all this that we can see with our eyes. There had to be a point where there was not yet here. That's the point of creation. But there also has to be something before that point. Well, what's that? The text says it's the very Son of God. That God was there. And God the Son was there. And God and God the Son, the, the Holy Trinity, even the Spirit are working together and they're creating the world. All that is in existence is in existence because God created it through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's creating the world. The Apostle Paul also wrote this in Colossians. It says this, All things were created through Him and for Him. Who's this child, Jesus? He's God. He is eternal. He was there before anything else was here. He existed in eternal ages past, before creation was here. It was part of His infinite genius that designed all the things that we see this very day. He shaped the hills. He shaped the trees. He shaped the continents. He shaped the galaxies. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was the Creator and even in this very moment, it says He upholds the universe by his, the word of His power. He's upholding it by His word. If Jesus were at any moment to say, stop, all would stop. The universe would disintegrate. It would cease to exist. He's called in other places the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha meaning He's the very first. There's no letter before Alpha in the Greek alphabet. There's nothing before Him. He's the Omega. There's nothing that will outlast Him. He's the very beginning. He's the very end. Now listen, you might be wondering, okay, well, this is all very interesting. So what? Uh, why do we need to know this? Y you know, the Bible says all throughout, from beginning to end, that for a human, a mere human like ourselves, to stand in the presence of God would be absolutely devastating for us. The Bible actually says that no one can see God and live. The Bible says that God's glory is too much for us. And we see this all throughout the Scriptures. Maybe you remember Isaiah getting a glimpse and he says, woe is me, and he falls to his face and confesses his sin. We get the Apostle John in the book of Revelation falling on his face like he's a dead man. It happens to Ezekiel. All throughout Scripture, people who encounter bits of the glory of God, they fall to their face. They can't handle the glory. It's too 
much. There's an otherness to God. There's a separateness, a transcendence. He is so amazing and glorious, humanity can't fully grasp Him. You say, what are you, what are you getting at, Eric? Listen, Christmas. Christmas is the story of this God who is transcendent, creator, ruler, upholder of all things. Listen, entering into the very creation that He upholds. Why? So that we can actually know Him. Jesus is, the text says, listen, the exact imprint of God's nature. People are wondering, what is God like? Some people will say, there's no way you can ever know God. It's arrogant to know what God is like, to think you know what God is like. Christ came to answer the question, what is God like? He came into the world. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. You say, what is God like? It's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is what God's like. Jesus is God. He was eternally inexistent. He entered his creation. He is totally divine. He's the radiance of the glory of God. See, here's what the message of Christmas is, is God wants fellowship with his people. He desires us to know him and delight in him. Isn't this amazing? This is what God is like. He wants you to delight in a relationship with him, to have fellowship with him. And yet he knew that He's so glorious that we can't just come to Him on our own terms and in our own way. Think of it like this. Go out and look at the sun. Or maybe don't. You might burn your retinas out. Right? You're told from childhood that you're not supposed to go out and look at the sun. If you want to actually go out there and you stare up into that bright blazing ball in the sky, what you're actually going to see is not the sun. You're going to see blazing light. The sun itself, to see the sun, you need a tool, right? Maybe you've done this, and you can look up through a certain tool that will shield you from the blazing brightness of the sun. It'll shield you from that, and you can actually see sunspots and solar flares and the actual shape of the sun itself, rather than if you just go out there and you just see brilliant, shining light. See, this is what Christmas is about. We can't just sit in the presence of God and look at Him. It'll burn up the retina of our soul. It'll, it'll ruin us because His perfect holiness in our own sin, we, there's a gap there. But God, listen, wanted you to know Him. And so He came to show us who He is in a man, being a man. And listen, if you read about Jesus and you see what He's like, you can actually really and truly know God. Through Christ, you can see the glory of God. Isn't that amazing? You can't see it directly. But in Christ, you actually can see who He really is. Here, here's, here's a, we sang it already this morning, uh, the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You probably maybe grew up singing this. And there's a line, the guy who wrote this, his name was Charles Wesley, Good theology, and he has it in a lot of his lyrics. There's this one line in Hark the Herald. Listen to this. He says this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh. What's a veil do? It covers something up. 
Isn't it interesting that he wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see? Maybe you would think veiled in flesh, the Godhead hidden. Veiled in flesh, I can't actually see divinity now. But God is so glorious, this is what he did. He veiled his glory in flesh. Why? So that in seeing Christ, we see his glory. We see God. We can actually hail the incarnate deity. God has come to us. This is the message of Christmas. That the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, has come to make himself known. Why? He desires fellowship with you. He wants you to know him. He knows that if there wasn't a tool through which you could access him, we could never have fellowship with him. And so he comes veiling his glory in the person of Jesus Christ so we can be redeemed through him. So that we can see him and know him and have fellowship with him. Do you have fellowship with Jesus this Christmas? Having fellowship with Jesus is having fellowship with God. That's our first look at Jesus. It's this, that Jesus is the true God. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal creator. And what should we do? Be amazed at him. Here's here's our second look. Jesus is the perfect prophet. Believe his word. We're going to go back to verse 1 now. Look at verse 1. Long ago... And at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken through prophets. All throughout the Bible's history, we hear about prophets and God speaking to people and God speaking to certain people who would then speak those words to other people. They're called prophets. God has always been reaching out to his people. He, he started with uh, Adam and Eve speaking directly with them. Uh, redemptive history starts with Abraham and speaks directly to him. And through prophets, God is speaking to his people. His desire that we learn throughout Scripture is that God intends to bless the whole world. And so he's speaking his truth to people who are then intended to speak it to others. But then it says here that he, he spoke in these other ways, but in these last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his Son. This is another ma- amazing message of Christmas. That God has sent messengers, and that's been great. We wouldn't have the Bible if we didn't have the prophets. But then God himself came as the perfect prophet. Not to just speak for God, but to speak as God. God walking among us. God speaking truth. If Jesus were to walk in this room, and if he were to stand up in this pulpit, and if he were to speak to us, every word he said, every word that would come from his mouth would be perfectly and absolutely and utterly true, unbreakable, undeniable, God has come, and we would be able to say that all those words that Jesus says are God's words, God speaking to humanity. One of the um, worst forms of punishment, it's been said, is to be put in extreme isolation, solitary confinement, locked up for days without anyone talking to you, without anyone contacting you. Humans were made for interaction and connection and love and and God made us in his image and so we crave relationship. 
To be cut off from that is difficult for any human to not have someone to talk to or be connected with. It's a difficult thing to be all alone, to maybe feel like no one understands you. It's difficult if no one wants to talk to you or maybe you feel the loneliness of a life where you just don't feel like people are approaching you. Maybe you've ever you've felt like that in the past. Well, on the other side, one of the most amazing things we can experience as humans is love. And someone coming to us and desiring to talk to us and share life with us and open up himself to us or herself to us. To share burdens and to share joys. To invite that life into the other life where two lives kind of become one. This is why marriage is such a beautiful thing. Relationships tighten around communication and speaking to one another. And you could say that here, God is demonstrating great love. He's not leaving us alone. He's not leaving us in solitary confinement. He's not leaving humanity. He has come to speak. He came to teach. Remember Jesus, he's on the scene and he's talking to us. And every word that he says is immovable, unbreakable, It is the eternal God speaking. His words are as solid as concrete, unbendable. There's nothing that will break what he says. He's the perfect prophet. And he's not just speaking for God like another prophet would do. He is speaking as God. Think of this, guys. Consider some of the things Jesus has said. He says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved That's Jesus, the prophet, speaking with perfect truth. Anyone believes in him, anyone comes to him, they will be saved. John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is true. That God, the eternal God, loves humanity so much, he enters in and he's saying, I'm a door, come to me. He comes into humanity, he says, I have life. Of course, he's the author of all life. Of course, he has life, and he's inviting humanity to come. He says in verse 11 of John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He came to live. He came to offer life. He came to die for sinners. He says in John chapter 10, verse 27, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't this amazing? This is what our God is like. We don't have to try to sit around and think up in our own minds, what is God like? Oh, we don't have to try to hype ourselves up and, okay, let's really try to believe this morning that God is good and hopefully he'll be good. No, he really is this way. This is actually what God is like and God's messenger, his perfect prophet, Jesus, who actually speaks as God for us so that we can know him, taking away the darkness, he speaks light to us and what he says is absolutely true and he's speaking saying, I am a door, enter in. I am a good shepherd, come to me. I give eternal life and if anyone comes to me, they will not be cast out. They will never perish. They will never be snatched up out of my hand. He's the prophet come to give the message of salvation to the world. That baby in that manger, there's a reason why the angels were shouting shouts of praise. There's a reason why the wise men, they wanted to come visit him. There's a reason why the shepherds were enthralled that the Messiah had come because this is what all humanity was waiting for. That the God who created all things now entered in and was speaking to the people that he loved and wanted to save. Listen, this, this shows us 
Christianity is utterly different from every other religion, isn't it? Right? Every other religion is you trying to get to heaven by climbing some ladder to get there. You, you got to work really hard. You got to try your best. You got to meditate long enough. You got to gather enough knowledge. You just got to be loving enough. You got to do enough stuff. You got to be a good enough person. You try your best. Even people who have an outsider's view of Christianity, they think Christianity is this way. And Christians are just people who try their best to follow Jesus, and if we try hard enough, God will save us. We're just trying really hard to be like Jesus, and if we do good enough, we'll succeed, and then Jesus will give us eternal life, and it's all about us trying to climb to heaven. This is not Christianity. This is what the Bible says, is that God has come into the world. He is speaking the truth, and the truth is that you can't save yourself, but that Jesus will do all for your salvation. It's all for your salvation, coming to him, trusting him. He saves sinners. You don't save yourself. See, listen, listen, listen to what happens. If you think that Christianity is about you trying to climb the ladder into heaven somehow by your works, your attitudes, your knowledge, your, your rituals, your religion, and your performance, if you think that's the way, here's what's going to happen. Either on one hand, you're going to be depressed you're going to often despair. You have a lot of dark days. Why? Because you'll know that your salvation is based on you trying hard enough, and no matter how hard you try, you're never going to live up to what you think you should do. And so you're always going to live in a, a state of, I can't do enough. Uh, I, I failed. Uh, God can't love me if I fail. And you're going to be miserable. You might sink into depression. You might be feeling confused and lost and hopeless. And if you think that salvation's all up to you, that's pretty much how you're going to feel. Or you might feel, on the other hand, you might feel pretty proud, pretty self-righteous. Because you'll think it's all about me, uh, what I need to do. And then you'll look at your life and say, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job. Look how good I'm doing. And you'll disdain the other people who aren't doing as good a job as you. And so you'll be self-righteous. You'll, you'll think that because you did enough that God is going to save you. Because you're following Jesus enough or because you're working hard enough, God's going to save you. And you're going to give yourself credit. And you're going to look down on everyone else who isn't doing as good as you. If that's what Christianity is, if it's just climbing a ladder, if that's what religion is, it's just trying to get to heaven on our own works, we're either going to be depressed and helpless and fall into despair, or we're going to be self-righteous and look down at the people who aren't doing as good as we are. The message of Christianity totally shapes you in a different way. Because it isn't that you climb the ladder, it's that God has come down. It's that God has come down. He has spoken to us. He has spoken truths to us. He has given us unbreakable prophetic promises that those who trust him will be saved that he is the door that anyone who comes to him will be saved he is God with us this is why we sing that song Emmanuel that means God with us it's not about becoming acceptable to God by doing your best to follow Jesus it's about God making us acceptable to him in his perfect life giving his perfection to those who believe by faith. He gives the righteousness he accrued to those who believe. His sinner's death, even though he was never once a sinner, he had never sinned once in his life, he dies to pay for the sins of those who trust him. He rose from the dead. Salvation is of God. It's God coming to us. It's God entering our world. It's God speaking truth to us. It's God speaking the gospel to us. 
And so God wants us to know here this morning and through the, the, the message here in this text, first of all, that Jesus is eternal creator God. He is divine. He was the one there before all things were there. He has been eternally in existence in the past. He will be eternally there in the future. He has always existed, will always exist, and he created the world. And listen, then he entered the world to speak to the world, to make promises to the world of how he would save. But let's get to the third. It says this, It says this really quickly. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purifications for sins. Here's going to be our third point here, our third look at Jesus. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Trust his sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Trust his sacrifice sacrifice. Isn't it amazing in this text here in Hebrews? It has all these things about who Jesus is, and he's the perfect prophet. He's the one who created all things. He upholds the universe, and you're really hearing all this about who he is, but there's not much about what he did. And there's really only really one statement about his work on earth. Look at what it says. You'll miss it if you don't pay close attention. The end of verse 3, after making purifications for sins, That little phrase (laughs) sums up the entirety of the life of Christ on earth for this author writing this letter to the Hebrews. He encapsulates, summarizes the whole work of Christ in this statement. He made purification for sins. Because right after that, it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That refers to his ascension into heaven and his, after his resurrection, him sitting next to the Father. And so the whole earthly ministry is summed up in this. He came to make purifications for sins. This is amazing. You say Jesus existed in eternity past. Yes, he did. Jesus will exist in eternity future. Yes, he will. Jesus was on earth for 33 years. Why? He was born to die. He was born to make purification for sins. He was born to purify a people for himself. He he came into the world to make purification for sins. Friends, this is the reality that God is too good to let sins go unpunished. He is just. It would not be good of God to allow sinners and criminals to just go free without any sin ever being dealt with. That would be unjust. That would be unjust. God is too good to sweep sin, to sweep treason, to sweep it under the cosmic rug of the universe. He would be too good to do that. And so what does he do? He sees the sins of man. The sins of man deserve eternal punishment. And then, out of compassion... He enters his creation. He tells the people that he has come to save. He tells the world why he has come. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give himself as a ransom for all. Why is he there? He is there to die. He's there to die as a purification for sins. He's there to be a sacrificial lamb. He he sees it and he says, sins must be punished. But I love my people and so I'm going to enter my creation and I am going to be punished in their place. 
The eternal God is going to become a man so that he can pay for their sins because he loves them so much. See, ever since the beginning, if you've read through uh, the Old Testament, you, you would know this. You get through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and you read, and, and it's often the part that's hard to keep reading through because you start reading about these sacrifices, right? Animals dying left and right, blood everywhere. It's a gruesome scene in the Old Testament. Often that's where reading plans are dying left and right in Numbers and Leviticus. And you go back to those places in the Bible and you get this clear teaching all the way through is that God's trying to teach his people about sin and its consequences and holiness and justice and all these things. And one of the things that God taught his people to do was at certain times of the year they would take an animal and they would take this, this bull or goat or lamb and they would take it and they would confess their sins to this animal. It was a, uh, for us, looking back all these thousands of years later, it seems odd, but this is what they would do. They'd confess their sins to the animal and symbolically the, their sins, the sins of the person, the sins of the people would be placed on the animal. And then what they were taught to do by God is they would kill the animal. The animal was a sacrifice and I think you see the symbolism here. The, the creature would take on the sins of the people and then the punishment that the people deserved would be given to the animal instead of the sinner. And so this poor lamb or this goat or this bull would be killed. They would die as a sacrifice. And always the people in doing this again and again and again, they would be seeing the blood of the animal and they would be recognizing my sins on that animal causes that animal to die. Sin leads to death. Sin results in punishment. They would be taught this. You couldn't escape it all the time. And they would also be taught that God has provided a way for my sins to be dealt with so that I don't have to pay for them. The animal is going to be killed instead of me. Wow, this is very good. And this was meant to create a sense of worship and love for God. These Old Testament people of God were always reminded sin results in death the animal can die instead of me, and if I trust in God's promises that he's going to forgive my sins if I continue walking faithfulness to him. Of course, this was leading us to understand Jesus, right? You understand how this all points to Jesus, because here's what Jesus did. Listen, Hebrews 9, 12, Hebrews 9, verse 12 says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, he, he came to the sacrificial altar. He came to make a sacrifice. Listen, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Jesus didn't bring another animal in. Jesus didn't bring another goat or a lamb in. It says he came into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice. He didn't bring the blood of other animals. It says this, he came by means of his own blood. He came not to offer a goat, not to offer a bull, to offer his own blood. He came to offer his own blood. What is happening here? See, in the Old Testament, the sins were only symbolically given to the animal. It was a symbol that would always remind them of someone else paying for their sins. But in Hebrews, the message is clear that the Christ, Jesus himself, offered himself not only to symbolically take the sins of the people, but to actually take the sins of his people. Listen. This is the word imputation. This is what it's all about. Maybe you don't know that, what that means. What that means is, is the sins of those who are trusting Christ were removed from them 
imputed to Jesus. And he held them. He carried them. And then he died for them. Just like the animals did. But the animals could never finish the process of redemption. They could never fully cleanse the sinner. But Jesus who was the eternal God, who was the final prophet. He himself entered into his own creation. He himself died to purify his people. It says this, that but as it is, Jesus has appeared, listen to this, once for all, this is Hebrews 9.26, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He appeared to put away sin by his own sacrifice. He didn't sacrifice his animal. He died for your sin. Eternal creator, entering his creation, speaking words of love, speaking words of salvation, claiming to be the door, offering himself up. Why did he come? It wasn't merely to make these promises. It was to enact them and to make them come to fruition by his own death. And what happened in his death? He died as a human sacrifice for sin. Why? So that all your sins by faith in him can be totally and completely paid for in full. Purified. Have you ever felt the nagging, guilty conscience deep within? Have you ever felt that your own heart needs cleansing? that there's an impurity deep within, I think if you're honest, you will say, yes, <laughs> you know what it's like to have guilt and shame. You know what it's like to fall short of not only your own standards, but of other standards, and most importantly, of God's standards. You know the, the agony of an unclean conscience, right? And the message of Christmas is that he came to make purification for your sins. And so that cleanses you. And so maybe this Christmas, you can reflect on this with more depth and, and meditate on this reality. You, by faith in Jesus, listen, are clean, cleansed, purified. Your conscience doesn't need to live in the shadows of guilt or shame anymore. It's clean. By faith, you are washed in his blood. He made one final sacrifice. You don't need to keep making sacrifices. You can rest in his grace. He saves you by grace alone. He does it because he loves you. This is why he came. Now listen, this is, this is amazing to re reflect, especially in Christmas time. That baby came to die. There's a scene in, in the Gospel of Luke where the old man Simeon, he's an old man and he's been waiting for his Messiah to come. He's been waiting and waiting for he calls it the consolation of Israel. And Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus, he's only a few days old, about a week old and, and Simeon's there and Simeon knows it's the Messiah and they give the baby to Simeon to hold and I just imagine this old man who's been waiting for his coming Messiah, he takes this child into his arms and he's blessing God that the Savior came. He's here. But he's looking at a child, an infant, helpless. And he blesses the Lord and then he says something that's maybe cryptic, maybe hard to understand. I wonder how much Mary and Joseph understood because he turns to Mary and he says, behold, listen to this, he says, behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he says, and I just imagine he kind of zeroes in on Mary here. He says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You say, why would a sword pierce through Mary's soul? Why, why would Mary feel that ache? It's because, we see this in John chapter 19, when Jesus is dangling on the cross, Mary's there. That little tiny infant baby with those tender hands, those hands are going to be driven through by nails. That little infant's head is going to be crowned with thorns. That tender baby's body is going to be torn open by a spear. He came to die so that you and I could be purified from our sins. He would take the weight and the punishment of our sins. He would take it upon himself. God entering his creation to die for our sins is a way that we could be purified before God. And here's our fourth point here. Fourth, Jesus now is the great high priest. Trust his intercession. So our last point is he's the sacrificial lamb. He dies for our sins. Trust his sacrifice that it pays for your sins. But now trust his intercession. He rose from the dead. It says here that after making purifications for sins, this is the midway point through verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This kind of skips right over his resurrection and goes straight into his ascension as he goes back to God. He, Jesus rose from the dead. He revealed himself to many witnesses. And then after he was there for a while, he went back to heaven and he sat down to be with God right at the right hand of the Father. You say, well, what's he doing up there? The rest of the book of Hebrews makes it really clear what he's doing up there. He goes up to the Father and it says he's our advocate. He's standing there for us. In fact, it will say in Hebrews 9.24, he goes to the Father, listen, on our behalf. He goes there for us. You say, where's Jesus right now? I'll tell you, you're going to drive around the neighborhoods, you're going to see him in a manger, you're going to see all these nativity scenes, you're going to see that he's in a manger. Jesus right now, friends, is not in a manger. He's risen. That's Easter. But he ascended, and that's right now. He's right now ascended to the Father. And what he's doing this very moment is interceding for you praying for you he's on your side he loves you he's seated at the majesty on high he's now there on your behalf you say well what does that mean that he's there on my behalf he's there as my advocate here's what it means we who have trusted in christ he knows your name and he's got your name with him and he's coming to the father in my case, he's saying, Eric's ours. I paid for his sins. He's purified by my blood. He's clothed in my righteousness. He's totally and completely forgiven. He's ours. And because of the advocacy and the intercession of Christ, I and you who are trusting him, listen, are completely secure. Totally secure. He's praying for you. 
He's your best friend. He's your greatest companion. He knows you better than anyone else knows you. He's watching your every move. He knows your aches and your pains and your joys. He knows it all. He knows your weaknesses. He knows when you're tired. He knows when you're sick. He knows what thrills you. He knows what brings you down. And he's praying for you that you would be brought safely home to heaven, that all your steps along the way to get there will be blessed. Not necessarily easy. But he will now allow no ultimate harm to come into your life. You know what this means? It means this Christmas, rest. <laughs> you can't earn anything before God. No one can. It's impossible. Christ has on your behalf. He's risen now. He's at the right hand of the Father on your behalf. He is advocating for you. He is praying for you. You can be done trying to impress God. You could be done trying to earn your way there. You could be done trying to climb the ladder to get into heaven. He perfectly loves you. He perfectly cares for you. He perfectly watches over you. Don't try to hide your sins from him. Confess. He already made purification for sins. Confess. Admit where you're at. Come to him by faith and you are redeemed. He lives right now for us. Listen to this text. Take this to heart. Write this verse down. Maybe go meditate on it later to just get a big picture of who Jesus is. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, listen to this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is never going to die again. He died once for sinners, but he always lives now, and he lives to make intercession for those who he is saving. Friends, aren't we in good hands? Aren't we in good hands? The church is in good hands. Your life is in good hands, and you could this Christmas get with family, and you could all sit around and talk about the goodness of your Savior, couldn't you? And I bet if we all were in this, own, this very own room, if we were to get in a circle and just kind of go around and talk about how good Jesus has been, we could probably go on for hours, couldn't we? We could talk about how good he has been to save sinners like us who don't deserve it. We could talk about how good he has been to bring us up to this point. Even in the trials, we could say how good he has been to us. We could talk about how good he is to bring us to home, to glory, that we don't deserve for one second. We can talk about his goodness. I pray that we would maybe do that this Christmas with some of your friends and family. He is so good. And this is what our God is. This is what he actually is like. He is this good. He wants to save you this much. That he would enter his creation. He would speak words of truth. That he would die for you to purify you from your sins. He would rise again and pray for you. Pray you into heaven. And here's our last verse. We'll go quick through here. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels. As much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is superior to angels. Here's our last point. Jesus is superior. Worship him. There's passages in Scripture where people come into contact with angels and they're tempted to worship the angel. Showing how even glorious an angel can look. God's own created being. Think of the glorified Christ, greater than angels, higher than them, more amazing than them. Angels didn't save you. 
But this Lord and Savior, eternal God has, through Christ, entering our world, the eternal creator became a helpless infant. Infinite glory entered the world to reveal who God really is. The holy God who does demand punishment for sin entered the world so he could take punishment upon himself for your sin. He conquers death in the resurrection. He lives forever to pray for his people to bring them home to heaven. This Jesus is precious. And maybe today, if you haven't ever in the past, you can trust him, worship him, acknowledge who he is, come to him believingly. And I tell you that anyone and everyone who has ever truly met him Anyone and everyone who has ever truly met him has testified that he indeed is precious, glorious, good. It's been said, go ask whom you will among those who have ever trusted Christ. And he will tell you that a trusted Christ means a treasured Christ. A believed Christ means a beloved Christ. A possessed Christ means a prized Christ. So friends, let's not make Christmas merely about traditions, merely about family, or even merely about a baby. Let's remember what that baby was, who that baby was, what that baby was entering our world to do, what happened when he grew up, what he did on the cross, how he accomplished salvation in his resurrection what he's even doing this very moment. He is not a baby right now. He's a living man interceding for us right now. And let's remember that Christmas isn't about us earning our way anywhere. It's heaven coming down, making a way for us. It's the free gift for all peoples, for all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Anyone who receives it by faith, turning from your own ways, turning from your own religion, turning from your own ritual, turning from your own religiosity and looking at the superior worshiping Jesus Christ. Christmas is about him. We're going to pray, and we'll be done. Let's focus on Christ this morning. So, Lord, our prayer is that, Christ, you are the center of our season this year. That, Christ, you are a precious gift. That you are our greatest treasure that we would recognize that you are superior to all that this world has to offer and we would worship you. Lord, I pray if anyone in this room has not fallen on their knees before you in joy that you have forgiven them, that they would for the first time trust you this very moment. I pray that you would help us all to see Jesus for who he really is and that we in seeing him would be comforted, overjoyed, encouraged, that we would be able to worship purely, not only in the way we sing, but in the way we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.